Good evening. Our reading this evening is taken from 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 6 to 18. That's 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, beginning at verse 6. And it can be found on page 1190 of the Church Bibles in front of you. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we command you, brothers and sisters, to keep away from every believer who is idle and disruptive and does not live according to the teaching you received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example. We were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's food without paying for it. On the contrary, we worked night and day, labouring and toiling, so that we would not be a burden to any of you. We did this not because we do not have the right to such help, but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you to imitate. For even when we were with you, we gave you this rule. The one who is unwilling to work shall not eat. We hear that some among you are idle and disruptive. They are not busy. They are busy bodies. Such people we command and urge in the Lord Jesus Christ to settle down and earn the food they eat. And as for you, brothers and sisters, never tire of what is doing good. Sorry, of of doing what is good. Take special note of anyone who does not obey our instruction in this letter. Do not associate with them in order that they may feel ashamed. Yet do not regard them as an enemy, but warn them as you would a fellow believer. Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times and in every way. The Lord be with all of you. I, Paul, write this greeting in my own hand, which is the distinguishing mark in all my letters. This is how I write. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Good evening. For those I haven't met, I'm Dave Howarth, one of the pastors down at Holy Cross Church in Poets Corner. Um, love and uh, best wishes from Holy Cross. We're so grateful to the Lord for our partnership in the gospel with Bishop Hannington. Let's pray together. Father, thank you very much for this church and that by your grace, you are using this church to do many good things in the name of the Lord Jesus while they wait for him to return. And please, Through this passage now, may that be ever more the case. For Jesus' sake, amen. And we all know that sometimes the thing that somebody needs most is tough love. Whether it's a teacher, sits on college, who said to me, if you carry on the same course you're on, you're going to fail. I've got to be in two U's, go figure. Or, you know, um, the, the doctor, he says, uh, you're obese. You, you need to 
to, to work on this. You need to work this out. Or the, the, the parent says, um, you know, stop drinking the washing up liquid. Little Johnny, you know, through your nose or whatever. You know, it's tough love. It's not easy to give and it's not easy to take. But we all know, know it, don't we? For a person's good and for the good of the people around them. Sometimes tough love is just exactly what's needed. And tough love is needed in churches just as much as anywhere else. Now, so how and when do we show tough love in the church? That's what this passage is about. Let's first understand why tough love in a church is so important. And it has to do with, you know, here we are at the end of 2 Thessalonians, but, but why it's so necessary has to do with the big, wonderful vision uh, for a church that 2 Thessalonians gives us. The vision of 2 Thess is that churches are to be, listen to this, a hope-filled group of people doing good while we wait for Jesus to return. A hope-filled group of people doing good while we wait for Jesus to return. So God wants us doing good in the world. But as we do, here's the rub, we'll face afflictions and trials. That's what this church in Thessalonica was facing. So we need, friends, roots of endurance, don't we? Do we we see the logic there? In fact, this letter says just a little earlier, brothers and sisters, stand firm. There are trees in the world, aren't there? Over 4,000 years old. So just amazing. Still alive today. They must have stood there through storm after storm after storm. They survived. What keeps them? Standing firm. Healthy. Well, it's the roots, isn't it? It's through that wind and the rain and the frost and the snow and the storms. It's the, the, the roots keep them standing firm. Bishop Hannington you and I, we need roots of endurance. And that's what Toothess gives us, because the thing to keep us standing firm when the storms come is hope. The thing to keep us doing good when the storms come is hope. And so Paul, he just keeps stressing that there is certain glory to come for Jesus' people when he returns. I want you just to take, have a flavor of this. Flip back, if you will, if you've got a Bible. Chapter 1, verse 7. And... We read there that the end of the verse, the Lord, when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. That's our hope. Chapter 2, verse 1, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus and our being gathered to him. That's our hope. One day Jesus, friends, will return. He will set up his kingdom on earth. It'll be glorious. His followers will be gathered to him. And you see then that rooted in that hope, Today, we can endure. And I, I hope that your hope has been strengthened if you've been, you know, coming to these 6.30s lately or tuning in online. But what if, what if somebody isn't doing good while, you know, in the anticipation of Jesus' returning? That was happening with a few in the Thessalonian church. Take a look at verse 11. It says, We hear some among you are idle and disruptive. So these are Christians, let's be clear. They're idle and disruptive. They, they, they could work. And it's not like they're retired. You know, they should work. And they knew that it was God's will for them to work. 
but they refuse to work. And the question of our passages, what do we do about them? What must be done about persistently idle Christians? Oh, it's up there. Yeah, excellent. I want to flag up how this hits home for us right away. For starters, there may be Christians in this church listening online who could and should work, but just won't get a job. That's that's possible. Uh, A more widespread problem is Christians in churches who sit back, content just to benefit from the good that others in the church do. So then what must be done about persistently idle Christians? And friends, the answer is not nothing. And neither is it leave it to the pastors. Listen again, take a look. Chapter 3, 2 Thessalonians, chapter 3, verse 6. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we command you, brothers and sisters, to keep away from every believer who is idle and disruptive and does not live according to the teaching you received from us. And so here's the first instruction, and this really takes in the verses 6 to 11. The faithful must keep away from the idle, because idleness is a serious problem. That is a hard command, isn't it? Isn't that a hard command in verse 6, keep away? But just as in a family, uh, disciplining uh, the little Johnny who drinks his washing up liquid, you know, disciplining the kid um, is, is sometimes the kindest action to take. It is sometimes necessary and kind to discipline a member of a church family. Church discipline, it might not be something we've given much thought to. And it is something churches can be lax on. But church discipline is clearly biblical. It's actually taught in a few places, including by Jesus, Matthew 18. And so church discipline is essential. God wants it to happen in his churches for the good of the church and for the glory of his name. And what's more, sometimes we will need to be involved in it, friends. We will. Whether to discipline or to be disciplined. And so it's good for us to understand it better. And do notice in verse 6, who is to take this evasive action? In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we command you, brothers and sisters... To keep away from every believer who's idle and disruptive. You see, for it to be effective, disciplining a stubbornly rebellious member of a church family has to be a group effort. After all, when a parent sends a naughty child to their room, it doesn't help if their brother secretly brings them a tablet to play video games on. Or Auntie Dot sneaks them a plate full of chocolate chip cookies. Now everyone in the family needs to pull together on it. When someone in our church is persistently and stubbornly rebelling against the word of God, we're told here that those who are not doing that, who who in line with biblical language, I'm calling the faithful, that the faithful must keep away from the unfaithful. Now, what it means to keep away is something we'll come back to when Paul does a little later. But whatever it means, I don't know how I can put this, we must do it. You see how strong verse 6 is. Take a look down again. Now, you might wonder what the problem is. Uh, We we probably wouldn't have put idleness in our Premier League of sins. Why does idleness warrant such a strong response from the rest of the church? The passage says that idle people damage the rest of the church. 
Read again. In the name of our Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ, we command you, brothers and sisters, to keep away from every believer who's idle and disruptive and doesn't live according to the teaching you receive from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example. We were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's food without paying for it. On the contrary, we worked night and day, laboring and toiling, so that we would not be a burden to any of you. We did this, not because we don't have the right to such help, but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you to imitate. For even when we were with you, we gave you this, this rule, the one who's unwilling to work shall not eat. We hear that some among you are idle and disruptive. They're not busy, they're busy bodies. So we see that idle people damage the rest of the church. They're, they're both burdensome and they're busy bodies. They're burdensome. Instead of working, they lived off the hard work of others, sponging off people who felt obliged to provide for them. That's a burden on the rest of the church. And they're busybodies. Because idle people don't have anything else to occupy their time. They often make a nuisance of themselves. And so do we see that persistently idle Christians damage the rest of the church? Now, there is actually another reason why this is such a serious problem, and you can probably imagine it damages the church's witness then to the world. This is actually a point that Paul made more in his first letter to this church, where he says, I mean, it was a problem then, you see. And he says the laziness of this group has called the surrounding community to lose respect for the church and the gospel. Which is, of course, the message that any community so needs to hear. Well, all in all, you can see why Paul takes persistent idleness so seriously and why we must too. There's a little helpful book called Church Discipline. And it has the subtitle of How the Church Protects the Name of Jesus. So what must be done about persistently idle Christians? We've seen, first of all, the faithful must keep away from them because idleness is a serious problem. Paul's next step is to address the offenders directly, telling them to get to work. So um, I think the message here is that the faithful must urge the idle to work. Take a look at verse 12. Such people we command and urge in the Lord Jesus Christ to settle down and earn the food they eat. Do you know, if you ever have a sense that, you know, that passage was spoken, you know, a sermon spoken directly to you. If you're idle... Verse 12, it's a direct word for you. Settle down, earn the food you eat. Get a job, any job. Don't be too fussy. That is the main reason. What is the main reason this passage gives for us to work? It's there. It's to feed yourself. Work in order to feed yourself so you don't have to sponge off others. And not, therefore, notice, not don't work to fulfill yourself. That's the refrain, isn't it, of our privileged, educated Western culture. You need to find a job in something you find fulfilling. Do you know, that's, I, I struggle to think of anywhere that that is emphasized in the Bible. I taught in the Bible. It's just, it's just, if that's not important to God, then it can't be that important to work in order to, to be fulfilled and you know, in the, the, just the right job. So, friends, don't make it that important. See, it would seem that Christians ought not to be overly fussy about em- employment. If you can do something you enjoy, 
Great. Praise the Lord. But most people in the world cannot resist the idea that that's essential at the very least. A very bright friend of mine, Christian friend of mine, he worked for many years for the Cambridge City Council. But he actually developed very serious anxiety. He had to stop. He had to stop work for a while. Uh, but then he knew he had to get back to where he couldn't go back working there. Right now, he's working on the shop floor of Morrison's. He doesn't enjoy it. But he's doing the right thing. When it comes to a job, yeah, pursue your dream. Please do, so long as your dream is to put food on your table. Of course, our children, our young people are bombarded with that, you know, work for self-fulfillment narrative. and We'll all need to help them think straight on this too. And what if a Christian is taking ages to get a job because they can't find something that's just right for them? Meanwhile, of course, they must be sponging off others. You know, that's not godly, and that brother or sister needs to kick up the backside. And here's the rub of this passage. You might be the person to give them that. Don't leave it to the pastors. The faithful must urge the idle to work. And what the faithful, the rest of us as it were, must not do is join them in their idleness. Rather, the faithful must never tire of doing what's good. That's the language straight from verse 13. Take a look down with me. Verse 13. And as for you, brothers and sisters, never tire of doing what is good. See so many masks out there. We've become so used to hearing about the spread of disease, haven't we? Uh, and most churches have taken significant measures to help reduce the spread of COVID-19, commendably so. But let's, let's not, I mean, grasp this, you know, very firmly. Sins are worse than sicknesses. And sins can quietly spread in a church, especially what have, what have been helpfully, I think, termed respectable sins. Like anger, selfishness, grumbling, worldliness, envy, idleness. These can become viral in a church. And so those who haven't been infected with the virus of idleness must fight its spread, verse 13, by never tiring of doing what is good. Which I guess especially means keep working. <laughs> Don't get lazy, start sponging, no matter how attractive that might look. And let me just apply this to employment. Friends, if you are here and you're in a, what feels like a, a mundane, dead-end job, let me encourage you that just getting on with that, feeding yourself, is pleasing to God. And I hope that in itself is fulfilling for you, just knowing that. It's a position of great dignity. Keep doing what's right. Never tire of doing what is good. But now Paul turns back to our idlers. What if, even after being appealed to, a persistently idle person won't change. And uh, here's uh, the final part of this uh, main chunk of the passage. The faithful may need to take firm action in the hope of restoring the idol. Look down with me if you've got a Bible. Verse 14. Take special note of anyone who does not obey our instruction in this letter. 
do not associate with them in order that they may feel ashamed. Yet do not regard them as an enemy, but warn them as you would a fellow believer. Clearly the church shouldn't be easy pickings to scrounge from. We shouldn't be doling out money and energy and time to Christians who can and should be working. We shouldn't be too nice to say no. Where someone is idle, the rest of the church needs to take firm action. Verse 14, don't associate with them. Verse 15, warn them. Now, don't associate cannot mean shun them totally, like unfriend them or whatever. After all, you can't warn someone if you've shut them out of your life. I think the point is that the rest of the, the, rest of the church shouldn't remain intimate with them. Even if we count them a friend of ours. This is too serious. We, we may well then have to stop, I don't know what it might be, having meals with them, going for a walk, walks with them, uh, other than to warn them, you know, stop having fun with them. Stop serving Jesus with them. You just see the point, we've got to stop behaving towards them as if they're not doing anything wrong. And any contact we have with, the, with them is to warn them about their behavior. Don't regard them as an enemy, but warn them as you would a fellow believer. This is hard, isn't it? This is hard. It is tough. And it's tough love. With all church discipline, God's purpose is that a, such a, this strong response from the rest of the church will shake them you know, towards that Christian, will shake them up to cause them to feel ashamed of what they're doing so that, so that they turn around and are restored to Christ and his people and back to you know, living in line with what Christ wants in the light of his return. And here then, it's so that these idle Christians, they quit taking advantage of generous people, they quit sticking their nose into other people's business, and instead they get back to work, they settle down, they earn money to buy their own food, bringing glory to God in the process. This is then, this is, it's about restoration. This is different, isn't it, to what often happens in our current cl- uh, climate of cancel culture. It's very normal that when someone in the public eye is found guilty of something that society currently perceives to be particularly bad, and it, it may indeed be bad, but the point is that they're, they're swiftly condemned, they're typically fired, and, and, and they're so often no longer able to work in the, in the public eye. The, the, the rub is, sadly, there's just usually no chance of redemption. Or restoration. What a world we live in where that's not possible. Church discipline is never about, it's never about bullying or crushing or belittling someone. The aim is, is never that someone would be thrown out of the church. It's that they be restored. And sometimes though, the only way that that can happen is through the rest of the church taking note. You see that? Uh, beginning of verse 14, takes, taking note of a persistently idle Christian and disassociating from them. So in this passage, we see clearly instructions for how the majority of a church should respond when someone amongst us is idle. And I take it that this applies when people are stubbornly sinful in other areas too. Not just in idleness. For the, for the person's good and for God's glory, there is tough but loving action which the rest must take. Tough love. But of course, we don't want it to come to that, do we? If we possibly can. <laughs> and so we've, we, yeah, just to, you know, the end of this, this little section, before we get to wonderful final greetings, we've thought about a right attitude towards paid work. 
which will help us not fall into idleness. I think it's also true that there are other areas in which we can be idle, making us a burden to the rest of the church. We want to avoid those as well. For example, this church is able to run because of the regular giving of members to pay for it. If you're not a Christian here, by the way, or listening, let me be uber clear right away. We want you to enjoy all of these things absolutely free. We're not asking for your money. But if we are Christians, we just might think, I don't need to give. I'm sure the money will come from somewhere. I'll just enjoy the benefits of someone else's giving. Not everyone will be able to give a lot of money, and that is absolutely fine. But in the light of this passage, wouldn't it be right for us all to ask, am I putting my weight here or or letting others do it for me? The same might be said of praying for Bishop Hannington. Some are regular prayers for the ministry of BH, at prayer meetings and in private. But are others of us assuming that someone else will do it? You know, others can do the hard work of praying while I'll just enjoy the benefits. Then there are all sorts of other areas where people are needed to serve. But a typical issue in so many churches is that a few do a lot, while the rest of us rely on those few to keep things going. God's design for a church is not for a few drivers and a lot of passengers. Two Thessalonians, the message is that we're to be a hope-filled church doing good as we wait for Jesus to come back. The point is, you see, that nobody is rolling in spare time, money, and energy. But we are all able to do some things. And the more we all contribute, the more good this church will do for one another, for our community, for our world, to the glory of God. And yes, where someone sinfully refuses to do so, then it may well be right for the rest to take the kind of firm action laid out in this passage. But no one wants it to get to that. And I hope that this passage inspires tireless do-gooders. <laughs> Again, verse 13, as for you brothers, is never tire of doing what's good. There are some in this church who are tireless do-gooders. You probably don't really know who you are, but you know, if you've got a, got a sense it's you, I hope you never tire of doing what's good. I hope also that this passage inspires some who've been sat in the stands to get on the pitch and join the team. Those who've been sat on the rafters to join the cast. And if you want to know how you can serve the church in our mission, please talk to someone here or contact the office. Here's the vision of two thefts for Bishop Hannington. A hope-filled church that keeps on doing good while we wait for Jesus to return. It's a great vision, isn't it? Oh, but boy, we'll need all the help we can get. I think that's why the letter ends as it does. Our final verses give us three things we need to keep looking to God for if we're to keep doing good to the end. Here they are in a nutshell. To keep doing good to the end. Keep receiving from God peace, confidence, and grace. Peace. First of all, verse 16. Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times and in every way. The Lord be with all of you. That's what's needed in the light of that deliberate disobedience of some. Although Paul commands strong action, He doesn't want bitterness to set in amongst the church. They're brothers and sisters. So he prays for this abiding and tangible sense of God's peace and God's presence for absolutely everyone. And in this church, isn't that just what we need? 
Next, confidence, verse 17. They're a church, I just want to preface first, there's a church, they're a church, you probably know if you've been in the series, where some have been deceived. They've been deceived into accepting a message that the day of the Lord Jesus, when he'll return, it's already come. And here's the rub. The claim was that that message came from God's apostle Paul. Well, Paul refuted that back in chapter 2. But there's still the question of how the Thessalonians can be confident that this letter was genuinely Pauline. So Paul says in verse 17, I, Paul, write this greeting in my own hand, which is a distinguishing mark in all my letters. This is how I write. It's my handwriting. Do you see the point? It looks like he used a scribe for the rest of the letter, but he handwritten this bit. Uh, it's kind of his watermark, you see, showing it's legit. And so they then, and we today, can and must hold to what he teaches here. Confidence in God, and in particularly in the return of the Son of God. It will happen. So keep doing good until that day. And here in this church, isn't that just what we need, such confidence? Finally, they're a church facing considerable opposition, and so Paul prays for grace. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all and also with you. Christians know God's grace. We do, don't we? It means that we've put in, been put into a place of eternal security. When Christ returns, he'll come for us. He'll gather us wonderfully. Our lives are upheld and embraced by God's loving arms in which there is complete security. No matter how great the opposition is, as we keep doing good. Well, such grace, which has already provided security through the fiery trials that this Thessalonian church are facing, will give them security. When, to quote chapter 1, Jesus is revealed in fire to judge rebels and gather his people. So friends, let's keep praying that Bishop Hannington would rest in and be wrapped up in God's glorious grace. Because isn't that just what this church needs? God alone can give us roots of endurance. So let's keep looking to him to make us stand firm.